Welcome back to another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram Podcast. And we are hitting the other three qualities of the mind, the fluid, the discerning, and the conducting. If you did not hit up the last episode, definitely do that. Um, you can listen to this one first, I suppose. But it'll but, seem like Greek um, to you, I think. It yeah. might be helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so You're not going to use any adjectives for us today, Greg? Yeah, we're not um, about your lovely oh, co-hosts gosh. now, or uh, uh, <laughs> my, did you change oh, yes. your mind already? <laughs> so soon, you know the yeah. the loveliness just kind of keeps yeah, going yeah, down yeah. the more time I spend with you too. Okay. I mean, it's just uh, yeah. Um, my my adequate co-hosts are with me today, <laughs> and um, <laughs> for lovely. Wait till we st- <laughs> yeah. adequately lovely. Is that work? Um, so. Is there any differentiation between like these three and the other three? Do you have a reason why you go in this way? Um, yeah, I, I can rationalize anything. I, I, I will say, <laughs> okay. yes. I will say that um, the fifth and sixth yeah. are yeah. need to be fifth and sixth. Okay, the others, hmm. the other four can yeah. be in any yeah, other, other interchangeable. order. Feels like beginner's mind should it be. Just, <laughs> <laughs> and find and finally ah, we get to the I beginner's mind. Yeah, that just just wouldn't yeah. be right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, maybe there's some some rational anyway. But, um so yeah. let's talk about the uh the the fluid yeah. mind. So the fluid mind, this is the ability to receive and to let go. Okay. And this is what you know, I I've I've referenced Buddhism a number of times throughout our podcast here and even though i'm not a buddhist i'm heavily influenced by buddhist philosophy and this quality is very very buddhist and 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 really when some of the even some of the um the virtues associated with the enneagram like equanimity are related to the fluid mind because what the fluid mind is all about is to recognize that we tend to suffer because we either reject or we cling Okay? Meaning there's some aspect, some part of our experience that we don't want to experience, so we try to reject it. It might be unhappiness, it might be suffering in some way, and we kind of keep it at arm's length and block it out if we can. And for some of us, it might be joy and happiness that we're trying to keep out, but that's another story. So, um, so, uh, so... But the point is, is that we tend to try and reject things, and that always fails, right? Because they always get in. And so what we need to get better at is letting them come to us, experiencing them, and then letting them go, okay? Because the other part of suffering is when we try to cling to something that has run its course. When I try to cling to happiness, for example, and you know, happiness comes and goes. It's often dependent upon circumstances. Um, so, you know, if I if I want to be happy and I'm not, you know, and I feel the happiness slipping, I go searching for stimulation or for, you know, some sort of pleasure that may make me suffer in the long run, but if, you know, I, I'm trying to hold on to it. Um, and again, same thing with the unpleasant things. If we're identified with unhappiness or anger or shame, we don't let go of those things even when we should. So the fluid mind is recognizing what is happening to us, what we are experiencing, and when 
it's time to let go of that thing. So the analogy we use is, uh, go ahead, Maria, did you want to say something? Yes, yeah. but you can go ahead with your okay. analogy. Well, I'll, I'll just give my analogy here. So, you know, if we go back to last episode, Creek, when you were standing by uh, the mm-hmm. waterside, notice how I didn't say, by the creek. Um, <laughs> you know, if... <laughs> You did say in any, anyway. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Um, you know, but if you were to step into that water. Creek in a creek. Yeah, there you yeah. go. We have to, you know, we have to let the water come at us. Okay. We have to let it go around us and, you know, get us wet, but then move on. Okay. We can no more resist the water than we can to cling to it. Mm-hmm. I think that, again, going, trying to look for, I'm not trying, but looking at the, you, you, how useful the Enneagram is in order to become more aware. I think that when we understand the Enneagram, the types and the instinctual biases, so much easier to see the patterns that we fall into. Like for example, with me as a one, I tend to resist what is if it doesn't fit what I think it should be. And and that makes me suffer because I continue to say, oh, it shouldn't be this way and he shouldn't have done it or whatever, or I shouldn't have done it. And because I know that I'm a one, I know that it fall, I fall into these patterns and I more quickly let it go. And I think that that kind of awareness is enhanced by the understanding of my type. So it normalizes a behavior. I don't say, oh, I shouldn't hang on to these things. Uh, I know that I tend to do that, but I also more quickly let it go. And that happens, I think, with our patterns uh, for all types. It does sound like this, in this particular mind, the fluid mind is more, this is where you hold the tension of opposites and you allow two things to be, to be true and inform you. More of that dialectic, that dialectic mind where depending on the experience and where you are focused and what you're trying, what the outcome you're looking for is, the same situation could mean two different things, could go two right. different ways. And I think that that's the one that is, that seems like one of the ones that's probably the harder one to do because it, it requires you to be uncomfortable and, and out of control. Um, yeah. Admit you're out of control or life is out of control. Yeah, um, it's, I think you're absolutely right here, right? So we have a tendency to want to resolve and to cling to certainty, okay? So it's the certainty in this case that we're clinging to of I should be feeling one way or another, mm-hmm. when in reality I feel both. There's a great term that Chogim Trungpa used, um, uh, sorrow joy, right? And he said, you know, that, that wisdom or, you know, the person who's developed can feel both sorrow and joy at the same time and often does because there's a lot to feel sorrow about and there's a lot to feel joy about. And we have a tendency to want to resist one or cling to one instead of just experiencing both of them and letting them wash over us. And, and, and you're right, it's this, I feel angry and I forgive you sort of thing. It's okay mm-hmm. to feel both. And if I try not to feel both, it means I have to reject one of these things and it's just going to boil up again, right? Mm-hmm. You know, how many times do we say, oh, I, I'm, you know, I forgive you, but we're still angry. And, but because we're denying the anger, it's just going to resurface and resurface. Yeah. 
our emotions always point to something, right? The emotions are not random. They're not, they're not purposeless, okay? They're, they're uh, a mechanism that has evolved over time to indicate an, an issue of some sort, either something we need to be aware of because it's dangerous or an opportunity, right? So emotions usually point to an opportunity or a threat in some way. So anger, for example, is a message to me that, you know, someone has done an injustice to me, or at least that's what I perceive. And so I need to do something about it. Okay? Sorrow means that, you know, something bad has happened and I need to resolve it. So my shame means I probably did something wrong to somebody and I should do something about it. So in order to increase fluidity in this way, we have to go through the process of naming what we're feeling, right? Identifying, okay, I'm feeling anger now. I'm feeling more anger. Yeah, I'm still feeling anger. You know, <laughs> what, what, <laughs> that's right. And you know, and so 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 we see it, we name it, then we ask ourselves the question, okay, what do I need to do about this? Right. And that's the important thing. And it, it's, it, you know, people tend to treat their emotions as an end in and of themselves. I have to transmute this sorrow to joy in some way. Well, the only way to do that is to do something about the circumstances that are making you feel a certain way. So if I'm angry, I need to either confront the person I'm angry with or resolve whatever the issue is, right? But I take some action, okay? Otherwise, I just hold on to it, right? If I feel shame, I need to correct what I did or at least do my be best to do that. And then I can let it go. This feels like a good transition point to the discerning mind. We have to hold these tensions of opposites, but then there does require some level of discerning and distinguishing this is an adaptive action, this is a maladaptive action. Um, within those two opposites. Yes, and whereas with the others we talked about not judging, with the discerning mind, that's when we do say, okay, what am I going to do with or about this? Is what I'm feeling justified? And if so, you know, how do I resolve that issue? What do I do with this thing that I'm feeling? What do I do with this information this observation that I made either about myself or about the world around mm -hmm. me. So discernment is a is where we start to get into evaluating either our experience or the information that we're perceiving through these other qualities of the mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. I do want to go back and distinguish a little bit because I, I think it's important. Yeah. Let's say I have a a friend hurt me. Immediately going into discerning mind may not be the best process. First, I need to acknowledge, actually, I'm sad, I'm hurt, I'm angry. Whether those are logical responses, whether they meant to right. hurt me, whether they, whatever, I need to first deal with that. And then I can discern, okay, what is it, what's, what's their responsibility that they did something not good to me? And what is, what is my overreaction to what they did whether intentionally or not intentionally that's where the that's the distinction of the discerning mind yeah yes so the discerning mind is about having the thinking skills to evaluate our circumstances so we can then assess the correct action 
to take. And I think the more we see things clearly and we see the full picture by focusing on what's important, by seeing, noticing everything that it's relevant and not grasping onto certain things or rejecting things, I think that we'll be able to make a better decision. We'll be able to better evaluate what's the better, the best course of action. So I think I agree with you that we cannot jump into discerning mind without going through the others, at least one, but I would say that all, if possible, mm. uh, in different ways. Again, going back to how it can be linked to the Enneagram or how the Enneagram can help us with this, I think that the Enneagram can show us how we might be biased in particular ways. You know, I know that I tend to see things in this way, which is not the full picture and or feel these things more deeply or more naturally and not these other things. So it helps us see more clearly, more mm -hmm. objectively, I think. And I think it's it's really helpful. I do this for myself is outsourcing discerning mind. Um, like what you were what you were saying, Maria Jose, is like sometimes I know I have a tendency to make mountains out of molehills when it comes to a certain situation. My emotions are just ramped super high. I'm like, I can't see clearly. I can't discern what's mine, what's theirs, what's the action forward. So sometimes I'll go to someone like a friend who I trust who's a five, who's just like, we'll just slice and dice to the nth degree and is not afraid to call me out. Or if I am like, life is meaningless, <laughs> everything is terrible. I'm like, hey, seven friend, like remind me that life is not meaningless. So like I need, sometimes I need that extra boost to be able to, to get to that level where I can start doing it for myself. Yeah, and I think that Awareness in general is not something that we need to do by ourselves. Mm. We can ask for this help in any of the minds that That's we've been true. talking about because it's really hard to see everything mm. and to notice and let go and do all of that. In every part of this, I think we can ask for help. And part of the function of the discerning mind is to recognize that sometimes we need to outsource this, mm. at least temporarily. Right, because the discerning mind says, "Yeah, you think you can handle this, but you really can't." Mm -hmm. So, do this. I, for, for the record, I tend to outsource the beginner's mind to uh, <laughs> to loop back to our last uh, episode. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but, but so so we can we can think of the discerning mind as the. <laughs> <laughs> so you just surround yourself with stupid people? Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. <laughs> Thank you. Know, you. There, 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 there's there's um, a great line. Well, go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty wrong. I'm kidding. Anyway. I'm kidding. <laughs> there's, there's a great line from the movie Heist where somebody says to Gene Hackman, uh, you're, you're a really smart guy, aren't you? And he goes, no, I'm not that smart. And he goes, well, how do you solve all these problems? He says, well, I just wonder what a really smart person would do. And then I do that. <laughs> and so what I like to do, Creek, is just say, what would a really stupid person do here? And then I, uh, no. Um, you know, it's so, going back to that, I, I think you do surround with people who are able to stand up to you and tell you that you might be wrong or show you a different perspective. Um, the others usually don't make the cut because they... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they limp off to the emergency ward. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, but the, <laughs> but this is why the critical thinking skills that we talk about are so important, right? The discerning mind is it's a more intellectual aspect of the mind, okay? And so the ability to identify logical fallacies, to identify cognitive biases, to have a fundamental understanding of science and history and philosophy help with discernment because the better intellectually we are, the more discerning we can be. I'm not saying that all intellectually, you know, gifted people are discerning because there's also a lot of literature that says really, really smart people believe a lot of really stupid things because they're really good at defending, you know, bad beliefs. So, but it's, it's an ability. The more understanding of how the mind works critically, the better we can be at discernment. And I just want to make a comment here because we keep talking about the mind and later on we will talk about emotional intelligence and we've talked about grasping onto feelings and that. But I do think that we are talking, that working on the mind and seeing clearly does help to have, how do I call it, better emotional reactions. You know, they're more kind of pure. There's less garbage around it and it's you can connect to your emotions better and kind of share them or express them in a more effective way if you see more clearly or if you think better because they don't have to own you yeah yeah and you understand what's really going on there right okay yeah we'll, we'll circle back to that let's let's do the conducting mind and then head into more practical things so the conducting mind the final quality of the mind that we work with, and again, I just want to reemphasize, we said this last episode, but it's worth repeating, that there are a lot of ways to slice this pie, to use Maria Jose's analogy, that will now be mine, um, <laughs> is that is there's lots of ways to talk about the mind. And there are a lot of qualities that we could identify. This is just our arbitrary way of doing it. For us, the conducting mind is kind of a a metacognitive quality, right? It's this observer self that many traditions talk about, but it's not just standing above the mind and observing it, but then it's directing. It's saying, okay, now activate this part of the mind. You need to be more discerning here. Or you know what? You need to be less discerning and you just need to be fluid. Or you need to be less beginner's mind here and be more discerning or whatever it is. So the conducting mind is that part of us, that quality of us that says, step back, see what's going on and delegate accordingly or implement accordingly to those situations. And obviously it's like the conductor of an orchestra who is you know, looks like he's just somebody swinging a little stick there and doesn't seem to have a purpose, but in fact, they're playing the whole orchestra, right? This, you know, this this section come up higher, this section go down lower, this section faster, etc. right? So that's what the conducting mind does to the other five elements of the mind. Could this be something of, like when I'm trying to work through an issue, I am conducting 
almost like which parts I'm focusing on. Yeah. So sometimes it's like this really annoying, not so helpful voice is just way too loud. So I need to like, all right, dude, let's chill out for a second. We're going to go over here and look at this thing. To So it's almost like, I feel like some people would call it your higher self or your more mature self or some something like that, where it's it's this more stand back and observe and play with the pieces knowing that you're you're going to get to a result or trying to understand a situation am i making sense yeah uh, but i would say that it's only higher if it's skilled sure because everybody has this ability right everybody says you know for example it's the conducting mind that says you know what i just need to tune that out for a minute mm-hmm. so i can concentrate on this yeah okay, that's an example of the conducting mind that doesn't mean necessarily that I'm tuning out the right thing or focusing on the right thing. Okay? So I'd be careful about calling things higher or lower, Sure, you know, uh, automatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would add that it's not only what I pay attention to, but also using the beginner's mind. What is it here that I'm not understanding, mm-hmm. that I don't know, yeah. or things like that? So it's otherwise it could be like the noticing mind a bit, like, okay, so these are the different right. pieces or, or the discerning mind. But here is kind of how do I use the, the other five in an effective way? So with the remaining time we have left, I'd love to jump into, I hear some, some pushback from our listeners of what... You know, it'd be so much easier without these pesky <laughs> listeners with all their ideas. Wow, okay. Um... <laughs> Wait a minute. We have listeners? Yeah, we do. (laughs) We're talking about mind here, but what about emotions? Like what Maria Jose was saying about emotions or about somatic uh, interoception, all all those sort of things that are useful ways of processing the world and, and finding the most adaptable next step. How do these qualities of the mind inform emotional intelligence and how we interact with the world? So emotions are signals. They're the non-conscious part of us way of saying, hey, look here, okay, there's a problem. They're information, but they're not conscious in the same way these qualities of the mind are, right? I want to be careful about that. So in the Enneagram literature, we hear a lot about, you know, the three centers, thinking, feeling, doing, okay? Reason we don't talk about that too much is because they're really interconnected and it's hard to tease out any action of any one of those so-called centers that's independent of the other two. Okay. So there are different things happening with the central nervous system. The central nervous system is made up of the brain in our head and nerves that run through the body that are taking in and sending out information through experience. Some of that information is in the form of feelings or emotions or pain or, you know, things that are happening in the body that are not necessarily emotions, but maybe feelings. I feel hungry, for example. Do you need to make a, take a break and go someplace? <laughs> no, no, no. That was... <laughs> <laughs> that was no. I, that, that was not literal. That was uh, I was uh, oh. it was illustrative. Although now that you mention it, so emotional intelligence 
is our ability to recognize with our mind our emotional states and to manage our responses to those emotional states. So I there's the part of my brain that's you know the, the you know perhaps it's the discerning mind perhaps it's the um, the noticing mind i feel angry what do i do with that now do i act upon it do i let it drive some habitual behavior or do i step in in some way exercise the fluid mind let it go or just recognize you know what i'm really angry here but instead of lashing out i'm going to take a deep breath and i'm going to think about what i'm going to do before i do it okay so emotional intelligence is just recognizing my emotional states and managing my reaction to it and that involves the head right the cognitive function the emotional function and the behavioral function as well all sort of tied in together okay it also involves recognizing the emotional states of other people okay ah Maria Jose is getting angry now right should I why are we, why are we only talking about anger <laughs> yeah I was going to say that well my next question will address that so Have you explored other emotions? <laughs> we speak of that which we know, okay? So <laughs> got it. <laughs> so where was I? So so Maria Jose is getting angry. Now, I can respond to I can react to that anger with anger of my own and escalate the situation. Or I can take you know a where deep that breath. would take us, right? Yeah, well, exactly right. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. So I, I, you know, so I instead being the bigger person, I step back. I take a deep breath. Bigger right? in what way? And, and I manage. <laughs> <laughs> I manage my response to that. Okay. Bigger in what so, way? I was like, let's move on. Okay. All right. So. <laughs> so Mario. Yes. You and Bob Talon wrote a book about the Enneagram and emotional intelligence and change. Yes. Yes, almost 20 years ago. Oh, you're very old. That's my only conclusion. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. uh, so what, how could you describe the, the relationship between the types and emotional intelligence that you wrote about in your book? In a nutshell, of course. In a nutshell. Well, look, what we did in the book, uh, at the time we were writing that emotional intelligence, Daniel Goleman's work on that and identifying different emotional competencies was all the rage, right? So the Enneagram proved to be a, um, a good way of recognizing where certain people will struggle or more likely to struggle in particular emotional competencies and where they might tend to be more skillful in them, okay? So self-awareness, for example, we could say fours, you know, probably more self-aware than say most eights, okay? And uh, so that's what we looked at there. And what we did with this is tied it into the awareness to action process and said, okay, here's where you're most likely to trip up in these emotional areas with the eight, it's probably gonna be around anger. Okay. No kidding. Right? Yeah, right. But with others, it might be around shame or it might be seeking too much joy or happiness. Okay. So, um, you know, what the Enneagram does is it points us to where we should look 
where, where, what we should pay most attention to, right? First. First, yes. Okay. So, for example, you know, somebody who, you know, tends to feel melancholy and sadness, when something's not working, the Enneagram says, well, you know, yeah, you're a four or maybe even a nine, right? Because nines can be melancholic as well. Mm-hmm. And so, okay, here's this tendency. When something doesn't feel right, look to this emotion first. Am I experiencing this emotion? Because a lot of times with emotions, we're experiencing something and we don't realize it. We've mentioned this a few times, but what's important about qualities of the mind, emotional intelligence, um, self-awareness, the really important thing is the skillful action that happens afterwards. So Mario, can you talk about that a little bit more as you've mentioned in your books? Well, I'll tell you, we, really, we address this uh, in awareness to action to some extent with the uh, awareness to action process, but also in the book Instinctual Leadership that Maria Jose and I wrote. We have a, a nice little graphic in there that I think illustrates what we're, the, the point we're trying to make here, that awareness is really, really important and it's foundational. Okay, if you don't have self-awareness, your ability to be skillful in the world, whether it's as a leader, a spouse, a friend, whatever, is going to be limited. Okay, very simple. Because it's self-awareness, either through observing ourselves or getting it from other people that says you're good at this, but you're not so good at this. So we have to develop self-awareness. At the same time, we need to be developing skills. All sorts of life skills. Maybe it's skills in our job. It's skills, you know, in our relationships. It's skills in our friendships. Okay, how do we speak kindly to people instead of speaking, you know, crossly to them? So we have this very simple graphic. Okay, so you have a vertical axis that is skillfulness. At the bottom, it is low skill. At the top, it's high skill. Then you have a horizontal axis that starts with not very self-aware, and then highly self-aware. So you've got this basic graph. The idea is to continue to build our awareness, moving left to right on on the graph, while also building skills in order to implement these things that we become aware of when we start to realize, okay, I'm not good at this, I need to get better at that, et cetera. So we're moving up the vertical axis. And what ideally you get is movement in a, you know, kind of a 45 degree line up the graph. Now, there are people, you could also think of this as sort of four boxes. The first box, lower left corner, not very self-aware, not very skilled. Okay, we all know people like that. Run right? away from the <laughs> yeah, run away from that. Yeah. Napoleon. Napoleon actually had a grid much like this, you know. And he said, you know, those people who are not very self-aware, you know, not very smart in his words, and not very skilled. That's kind of your cannon fodder, you know. You put them out there on the front lines, right? And you know, and it was the people who were not very smart, but who were really aggressive. You take out back and you shoot. Okay, so um, that's not quite what we're advocating here. Right, so <laughs> it, it, you know, the the lower left quadrant is people that are not all that self aware and not all that skillful, but you also have people that are not necessarily self aware, but really skillful. Okay, and the, these are the kind of clients that you know Maria Jose and I sometimes work with. Okay, they're really good at their jobs, 
but they lack self-awareness in crucial areas that limit their ability to grow and develop. Yeah, and uh, they're not very skillful in relationships, for example, or things like that. Right. So there's right. there are areas where they're not skillful, but they are tricky because they are very kind of high functioning in their jobs. They right. produce results and they seem to be skillful. So that would be kind of the upper left quadrant of our you know little box here. Uh, now, on the lower right, you have people who are highly self-aware, but still not very skillful, right? And this is what I would put into the category of self-absorption, like we talked about last time, right? Because you're observing yourself and you're observing yourself, but you're never acting upon it in a way that helps you develop skills. Ideally, what you want to be doing is working on skills and awareness at the same time, which gets you up into that upper right corner of, of our grid there. It's hard to work on both, I think. Absolutely. And I've heard over and over, like Nashville musicians, they will nine times out of 10, right? They'll always choose the guy that's easier to go on tour with than the guy who can shred everyone's face off with his guitar licks. I mean, obviously they have to have some level of skill to play on a tour, like on a tour, but that self-awareness and skill is the winning combo. So. Yeah. You don't want anybody who's, you know, all one and not the other. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. Feel free to reach out to us with any sort of questions you may have about this. I know that was a lot of information. Um, you can reach us through the website. We have resources in the show notes and uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Awareness to Action Enneagram podcast. If you're interested in more information or talking to Mario, MJ, or myself, feel free to reach out to us through the links in the show notes or by emailing info at awarenesstoaction.com. All episode transcriptions and further information can be found at awarenesstoaction.com slash podcast. 